You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Hey everyone, it's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio. Uh, today's cool fact of the day is that the record for the longest period without sleep is 18 days, 21 hours, and 40 minutes. And that occurred during, get this, a rocking chair marathon. Like, wow. <laughs> the person who holds the record had hallucinations, paranoia, blurred vision, slurred speech, and memory and concentration lapses. Now, I know a lot of people have those things, but they're usually at Burning Man. And so I'm not sure how related rocking chairs and Burning Man are, but there might be a relation. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest is Dan Party, who's an entrepreneur and a researcher, and he's looked at how to facilitate health behaviors in people and created this really cool thing called the loop model to sustain health behaviors so that you can maintain health and vibrance in our modern world. And he works as a researcher with the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Department at Stanford in the Neurology and Endocrinology, uh, or and in the Neurology and Endocrinology Departments at Leiden University in the Netherlands. In other words, he's like academically got some serious credentials and has developed a model that's really useful to the things that Bulletproof people care about all the time. So Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be, uh, great to be on. Now, you also work for Naval Special Warfare to help elite fighters have vigilance when they're fighting people or not fighting people. So you've gone beyond just looking at sleep or health to looking at like performance when life and death are on the line, which is the other reason I wanted to chat with you. What, what was that like when, when you sort of jumped in there and worked with like, these elite warrior types? Well, it was a huge honor, um, for sure. And... Uh, you know, going in there, I didn't, I, I don't have a military background, but I tried to think about what their situation was like. So they, without knowing much about it, and I know that their training wants to prepare them as best it can for battle. Then they're going to be in a condition of battle where the, they're not going to be able to plan all the time. They're going to have extended missions where they have to maintain vigilance for over a hundred hours at a time. 
Um, and then there's the condition of being deployed or uh, not being deployed, but coming home and then having to, you know, what do you do after you've been in, in battle and how do you sleep if you're basically been maintaining a hypervigilant state for a long period of time? And there are basically three pretty distinct conditions, but these guys end up, um, you know, dedicating their lives to, to our country, even if they, you know, are still alive when they get back. Oftentimes they have real serious metabolic issues and sleep problems that can last the rest of their lives. So, um, anyway, it was really an interesting situation. I, I work with, uh, so Naval, uh, Navy SEALs and also, uh, swift boat operators, which support Navy SEALs while they're operating. Um, and I go in there and I tell them what are the determinants of good sleep and therefore what are the determinants of vigilant or alertness. And so they understand what those things are so that when they have the opportunity to create the conditions or to respond to the conditions that facilitate alertness and good sleep, then they can actually, you know, take advantage of that. So that's kind of the general intro to that work that I've been doing. Have you ever done any work with uh, with Mark Devine or Doc Parsley, Kirk Parsley? Not not Mark Devine, but I got connected with the SEALs through Doc Parsley. Oh, cool. So um, Doc Parsley is a friend. And if, for people listening, Mark's been on the show. Um, my, my, the thing that helps me remember Mark's name is, is he's the only guy I know who can kill you and has a porn star name. So, <laughs> but uh, he's, he's an elite you know, Navy SEAL commander kind of guy. And, um, it, it, it's really interesting when you look at, at what's, uh, what's possible when you're dealing at that level. So I figured that, that people were listening who are connected into that community of like, how do you make people sleep would probably understand those names. So you have work with, with them and what are the tricks to hacking sleep for people who are like so stressed that like people may be shooting at them at any time? Like, like how do you do that? Yeah, well, actually, you know, it's. I, I also work with high-functioning organizations to help them with this a similar issue. But the the seals are are tough because they they are not always in a place where they can, like I said, act upon the things that will get them good sleep. So then you have to know, well, okay, so if you can't if you can't do everything that you ordinarily would, you know, how can you, you know, what should you do that then? And a lot of their training tries to inure them to the effects of sleep loss, which can happen. So. What that means is that you you don't get enough sleep on a regular basis and you basically become toughened to the effect. Uh, you see this with you know a surgeon who's performed surgery at night thousands of times. Over time, they actually have less of an emotional toll of saying, okay, I'm not getting the sleep that I need, but you know what, I've been in this situation a thousand times and I can perform well. And um, that sort of thing can happen. So when you don't get the sleep, you know, that you're, the full amount of sleep that your body would want, you can have less, you can train yourself to have less of an emotional response to that. However, the objective impairment that does take place will still, there's no, you can't actually, you can't train yourself to not experience the objective impairment. And so what ends up happening is these guys perform, can perform well on less sleep because they've done it before and they know that they can, but they're also more likely to do things like engage in friendly fire and make decisions that are uncharacteristic of, of themselves if they're really sleep deprived for long periods of time. So you want them to be tough to the effects of sleep loss, but you also want to, them to be sensitive enough to know when they're, they're putting themselves or you know, their team in a dangerous situation. When I was developing the Bulletproof Diet, I went through this period, it was after my, my son was born, and I said, all right, I'm going to do this ridiculous experiment. I'm going to eat like 4,000 to 4,500 calories a day, and I'm going to maximally sleep five hours a night. And if I'm just going to wake up when I'm going to wake up, like like at the set time. And if I go to sleep at four in the morning and I wake up and I get three hours of sleep, that's just what I'm going to have for the day, and I'm not going to take naps and all that kind of stuff. And I figured I was doing this because if I got very little sleep and I ate way too many calories, oh, and I stopped exercising... I should gain weight. And I was planning to gain three pounds when the, the calories in calories out says I should gain, you know, 20 pounds and be like, guys, something's going like, where's the 17 pounds? The math is wrong here. But what I did was I got a ton of energy and I, I was using bulletproof coffee with like eight spoons of butter and whatever I could to, to pound the calories in. Uh, and I ended up doing this for about two years and I maintained muscle mass, uh, got a little bit leaner <laughs> and overall had this experience. And I believe that I, I stress conditioned myself for sleep because during that time I also got to the point where I'm like, yeah, I'll fly to 
Singapore or wherever, and I'll get on stage two hours after I land and I'll deliver like a kick-ass presentation. Yeah. Right. And sometimes it, it's, I, I use modafinil during the first half of it, but a lot of times I didn't. Like I'm not using modafinil now. I haven't used modafinil in the past. Oh, geez, going on a good year and a half, maybe almost two years, mm-hmm. um, because I don't need it anymore. Like I might be tired, but I can still kick ass. So, so consider me maybe as sleep conditioned as some of these guys you train. But when I started that, if I was an average person, what percentage of the sleep deprivation burden comes from my body's own fear of being tired versus the actual physical impairment? So that's a really interesting question. Um, in fact, so my research uh, was looking at something just like your question, but related to food intake. So oh, sweet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting stuff. So what I did, I'll, I'll tell you about the experiment and we'll use that as a launching point to kind of go further on the topic. So I took 50 subjects and I gave them a baseline examination where I, I looked at a variety of things related to cognition. So reaction time, mood, memory, and that was baseline. A week later, I gave, uh, they, the intervention was that they got more or less sleep than usual. And then they came back in the next day, the day after the, the sleep loss or normal sleep, and they did the exact same experiments um, that they did the week before. And I looked to see how did their mental performance change if they had more or less sleep. The, what I also did is I used intentional misdirection. So in the middle of the test, I gave them a, a break. And that break, I put out a variety of different sorts of foods. And I said, okay, well, we're, I'm going to have you watch these two TED videos uh, and you came in fasted, you didn't have anything to eat. So, but then the last experiment, you need to actually have some food in your system. So it's better to be closer to full than still hungry. And, and, and that's all I said, but I said the exact same thing to everybody. And the food choices were basically like kind of ostensibly healthy or not so healthy. So you had gummy bears and you had, you know, almonds like, so gummy bears are low fat. So those were the healthy choice, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But as you know, you know, people's opinions about food vary drastically. They yeah. were a, they were agave, they were agave gummy bears. So some people might say, oh, well, isn't agave supposed to be healthy? So actually they're good for me. Some people that if they believe that fat is bad for you, you know, might look at the almonds and say, oh, those are high fat. They're not good for me. So what I really cared about was how did people eat uh, based off of their own perceptions of the food. So I had them at the end of the study rate all of the food choices. And then what I did is I looked for associations between reaction time, which is a measure of objective alertness, and how well and and what they actually ate. And I found some pretty interesting things. Um, that subjective sleepiness, which is basically how sleepy you feel, had differential effects than objective sleepiness, which is a re- reaction time. Not, not, not in all cases, there was some overlap, but people, when people feel sleepy, they ended up eating more calories in total. They ended up selecting more foods that they rated as less healthy. And then as the investigators, we also decided to draw a line down the middle and we said, okay, these four foods are actually like bad foods and these four foods are good foods. Um, and we kind of then said, okay, how much did people eat based off of our, our, the investigator rating of these foods? So what we anyway, it was very interesting. So this, when people feel sleepy, they ate more foods that they rated as less healthy. And when they had objective impairments of sleepiness, so when they had slow reaction time, they ended up um, eating more calorically dense foods. And these were all statistically significant findings. And so um, I think your question was, you know, how much do these kind of how much of the effects of sleep loss are just kind of the emotional toll? Um you know, it's a good question and it's probably conditional on what exact situation we're talking about, but, um, but they do differentiate. So just by feeling sleepy, um, I mean, these people, they weren't in terms of their reaction time, objectively they were performing fine, but they felt sleepy and they were making different choices. And so that's, Hmm. that's a pretty interesting finding. I believe there is some value for people. And maybe that's the function of, of going to college <laughs> is, you know, staying up really late and drinking too much <laughs> beer and then somehow managing to stumble into class the next morning and not fail. Um, yeah. But there's there's something that you can do just to reduce the stress. And, and I yeah. I look at my experiences taking modafinil most of the time for eight years. Yeah. And I actually talked this through with my wife, uh, Dr. Lana, 
And one of her theories is that when you take modafinil for even you know a few months, that it does show the body. And I don't mean like show you, but it shows like the nervous system and the, the parts of you that you don't really see that like, oh, you're not going to die if you're tired and you have to get up and do what you're going to do. And that it just sort of lowers that stress thing. And, and so, you know, lack of sleep conditioning is rough on your body. It can give you cancer and things like that um, yeah. if you do it a lot. But if you do it enough to be able to function on a little or a lot of sleep yeah. and maybe maybe that's a life skill that's worth having. You know, it's a really good point. And we see that with nurses and anybody that does shift work, they have to learn how to perform when they're not getting optimal conditions for for good sleep and mental performance. And they do. And not all the time. Actually, you see a higher risk of accidents. You see uh, the, you know, we'll talk about some of the stuff today, I'm sure. But the, the mind changes in a variety of interesting ways when you're sleep deprived. And some people can perform, let's say, a majority to all of their tasks just fine. But the more complex those tasks get, the more sleep deprived you are. There's also individual variability. Some people can withstand sleep loss much better than others. So if you look at objective decrements in performance over, you know, let's say 60 hours, they experience very, very little. And that has to do with genotypes uh, around period genes, other genes that are involved with circadian rhythms and, and you know, the, the kind of the impact of sleep loss and people, and I bet that seals, for example, are probably selected for, they, they have a certain genotype that perform very well under sleep deprivation. Now that doesn't mean that they need sleep less than others across all the different domains uh, that, you know, of the value of sleep, mm-hmm. but that means that they can perform better where other people, you know, once they've had a full day of wakefulness, their performance drops off precipitously as soon as it's nighttime. Uh, and yeah. Now, I I love talking with doctors and having one in the house makes it really helpful. But I was talking with with Dr. Lana about what do you do when you're working the night shift in the ER, Mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things is, you know, you eat and you eat calorically dense foods because now we know at least that that willpower (laughs) in the brain is tied with blood glucose levels. And I would argue or ketone levels because when people drink, you know, brain octane oil and get ketones and sugar at the same time, like... They, they get more. There's an edge there. What changes in your research when people are eating calorically dense, nutritious foods? Well, I, I so I have, I didn't look at the effect of the meal on okay. on the mental performance. I did. I actually did. I'm going to analyze that later because I okay. did have one part of the test happened after the food intake. But I was more interested in looking at how reaction time influenced mm-hmm. or didn't influence what people chose to eat and how much they ate. So that was the pri- that was basically the primary variable of interest. Um, but it, you know, the, uh, unfortunately the effects of, um, the, the research that's looking into diet and sleep are not that good. There needs to be more research there. Um, generally carbohydrates seem to have a favorable effect on sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason being probably is that, um, there are, neurons in the brain called hypocretin neurons. Those neurons are uh, responsive to circulating levels of glucose and they're actually, those neurons are inhibited by glucose. And the, a, better, a really good way to think about what these neurons do is they sit at the center of the wake network and they tell all the other wake ner- network neurons when to be on. And so if you are sleepy, then having glucose in your system is going to make you feel sleepier. Um, if you have good alertness and you've gotten good sleep regularly, having carbohydrates in the system can actually make you feel more calm. Um, but in the evening, the only studies that the, the few studies that I've seen on nutrition, I mean, the data is kind of all over the place, but a, a carbohydrate meal in the evening can help to facilitate uh, or reduce sleep onset. So people can fall asleep a little bit faster. Does it have much of an effect on sleep quality? Not really. Um, nothing. Nothing substantial. It it may be individually variable too, uh, for the individual sleep quality thing. Like I, I've had a few clients where they they do the the trick I wrote about in the bulletproof diet about using a tablespoon of raw honey. And are you familiar with that raw honey versus regular honey idea? Uh, yeah. Tell me a little more about it. Oh, okay. Cool. So I came across this uh, a fan, and I wish I could remember who it was. Sent me this this book randomly called like the Honey Revolution. I'm like, really? Like you're going to send me a book on like how to have sugar? Like, oh come on! But I read the book, and it and I apologize if I got the name. It might be like Honey something, but <laughs> it uh, it had just tons and tons of references. And one of the most interesting ones in the book was that if you took about a tablespoon, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little more, of only raw, not cooked honey, yeah. 
uh, maybe 15 minutes, a few minutes before bed, that it would raise your blood glucose for at least six hours because that kind of honey is 22% more likely to go to liver glycogen, which serves as a fuel source more for the brain versus muscle glycogen. And that when uh, when you did this, that it would improve sleep quality. And I'd been talking with Seth Roberts uh, from Quantified Self. And so he had also noticed this funny, if I have dessert, I sleep better thing. And so I'm like experimenting. I'm like, wow, this, this is kind of cool. Like, I'll put it in the book yeah. uh, and, you know, cite the, the places where it came from. Is there validity based on what you know about the stuff to that, that idea? Uh, is it a hypocretin thing or is there, there's also talk about it being serotonin modulated? Any thoughts? Well, yeah. So, you know, blood glucose levels are regulated um, in a very complex fashion over the course of a 24 hour period. And I wish I knew it a little bit better to, you know, just describe it probably efficiently. (laughs) Um, but the reason, you know, we actually have our hormones change over the course of the night, as you know. So at different points of the day, for example, our, you know, cortisol levels are low in the evening and they're higher in the morning and that will change over the course of it, of an evening. And the reason, one of the reasons that it does that is to actually maintain adequate blood glucose levels throughout the night. And same, and there's other hormones that will actually respond in a very, in a similar way. So, uh, we have, um, growth hormone levels are very high in, at night, uh, excuse me, in the first part of the night, um, they correspond with levels of slow wave sleep, which are thought to be more restorative aspects of sleep. And so anyway, um, there's kind of this intricate dance and balance over the course of an evening with different types of sleep that are occurring and different hormones that are released and a stabilization of blood glucose levels that, that take place during what we, you know, what is typically a fast, right? We don't eat at night usually actually when we do, it's problematic, Um, and that is just, that is one of the ways where that the body will regulate blood glucose levels. So in the morning when cortisol levels are high, part of that is to actually keep an adequate amount of blood glucose, blood glucose in the blood to support, you know, the, the regular functions that, um, that it does. So, um, anyway, it's a very complex dance and, you know, whether or not, um, I don't know that you need to like be loading carbohydrates uh, in order to induce that sort of effect. I mean, our, our blood glucose levels stay fairly stable, um, unless you have kind of hypoglycemia issues, um, Oh, you know, for over 24 hours. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, I don't know anything about that, but I'll look into it. Thanks. Oh, cool. Uh, it's, uh, it's a question that there's few guys I would even think of asking because it's just kind of out there a little bit, but the effect was, was really noticeable. So I'm like, all right, I'm writing about it and it's a quick experiment. Like try honey before bed for a week. And if your blood glucose doesn't go crazy and you sleep better, like, well, okay, uh, stop it for a week and start it again. And it's probably not placebo. If it is, then, then own it. (laughs) (laughs) So. <laughs> right, right. It it sounds like a very low risk situ- experiment. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about persistent insomnia and inflammation. Are you on top of of the correlations there? It looks like you might have done a paper on that. Um, you know, I, I I didn't write a paper on um, insomnia and inflammation, but um, you know, I'm maybe you just sent me one then. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm interested in, you know, insomnia is, I, I was in Switzerland and I had a good fortune of sitting down at a table with, uh, the Dean of the neurology department at Harvard. It was uh, at a conference and we were chatting about insomnia and, um, his name's Cliff Saper and he's, he's like, yeah, you know, insomnia is much more of an, of an anxiety disorder than it is a sleep disorder. And now there's different types of insomnia. Um, the, the kind of organic insomnia is very rare, but that is where you have a problem with some center involved in sleep initiation or sleep maintenance. And it means that you cannot go or stay asleep. And that's a real big problem. Um, but for most people, most of the time, we, a lot of us experience insomnia at some point in our lives. And it has to do often with some sort of stressor. And sometimes yeah. it's actually just mental engagement. Like, you know, you've got a, you've got, you've got this idea and you're absolutely manic about it and you can't stop thinking about it and shut off the machine. And that happens a lot as well. But either way, you have this hyperactivity that is taking place in terms of, you know, cortical activity and you can't shut it down. And it kind of overwhelms the pressure of sleep that has built up naturally over the course of the day. And, um, what's really interesting is that some work by Eric Knopfsinger, um, he looked at, so a lot of people, this is a typical experience. People that have chronic insomnia, they go to a sleep med- they go to a sleep specialist, 
they do a PSG or an overnight sleep study and the doctor tells them, you know what, everything's normal. And, you know, all of your sleep, your sleep architecture looks totally normal. And you fell asleep a little bit, you know, more slowly. It, it took you longer to fall asleep than the average person by a little bit. But, you know, it took 25 minutes instead of nine. So you're, you're fine. And the, and the person will look at the doctor and be like, you are a fraud. I hate you. You don't know what you're talking about. I was up all night. And um, so I, I, that's why I think that this work by Dr. Nofsinger was really, really interesting. He did fMRI in sleep-deprived people. And what he, uh, in people that have insomnia, excuse me. And what he found is that brain activity, so you can detect uh, kind of with more fidelity different types of brain activity with fMRI that you can with normal PSG. And what he found is that um, there was areas of the brain that looked like they were awake, even though the rest of the brain was asleep. And he called it this hyperfrontality. So these areas that are kind of processing thought were, it was like they were awake, they were not kind of demonstrating normal characteristic behavior as sleep, but the, but the rest of the brain was asleep. And what that led to, because that area was hyperactive at night, it led to hypofrontality during the day, which meant like sluggishness and, and, and you know, slow thinking and fatigue. And so that's a pretty common experience of people that have chronic insomnia is that they, they feel that they're awake even though they're asleep. And part of that is because their brain is processing and thinking and they feel that they're awake. And then that – even though they can't sleep ever – uh, or, you know, they have a hard time doing it. They have this kind of alertness that is um, that is there persistently. And, um, yeah, it's a it's a tough situation. So there's a lot of things that are driving it. Um, and anyway, you asked about inflammation and insomnia. So, I, you know, I haven't explored the connection there. But, you know, inflammation seems to break everything in our body. It's, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, I certainly would not be surprised if there was kind of an association there are there are centers of the brain that in the hypothalamus that are most active at night. So they initiate to facilitate sleep onset. And if those areas were to become inflamed, like we see with other areas of the hypothalamus, so we know that areas of the hypothalamus can become inflamed, then the, you know, usually what you have is inhibited function. And so while I don't know anything specific about the connection there, I wouldn't be surprised if there, if there was one. There's a couple of studies I've come across. Um, yeah. That that say that there's one, and, and certainly you would expect if you have less growth hormone and you know, your other circadian disruption things happen, that inflammation would be one of the things that, that would happen. Yeah, there's a, another thing that that's kind of come up lately around uh, the potential that narcolepsy might be an autoimmune condition, mm. which is something I would absolutely say. Well, it makes sense to me based on, yeah. on a lot of the narcoleptics that that I've I've talked with over the years, they seem to have all yeah. these other problems. Yeah. What do you think about the, your immune system and sleep? Is there a connection there that people can use to hack their sleep or are people with allergies? Like, should they be paying extra attention to their sleep? Yeah. So, so narcolepsy is a disorder that I studied for about eight years. Um, I worked for a pharmaceutical company that had a drug for narcolepsy. That drug is sodium oxabate. And that's where my love for sleep started. I knew nothing about it beforehand. And I would go to the APSS conference, the Associated Professional Sleep Societies, and it, soon it became like one of the hardest choice. You know, the hardest choice I'd have to make all year was like, okay, which session do I want to attend? Because, <laughs> you know, they were all so interesting. It was all such a window into how you know sleep provides this incredible window to understand how the body and mind work. And um, narcolepsy has been kind of the darling of of sleep research because, um, as I was mentioning earlier, these hypocretin neurons. Those are the neurons that actually go missing with narcolepsy. And so probably due to autoimmune attack, um, autoimmune uh, disorders can be very hard to pin down because the kind of the, the conditions of autoimmunity that end up causing the you know damage at a certain site, they can be gone. The markers can be gone by the time that the condition is man manifests itself clinically months later, years later, whenever. And so, people that have narcolepsy had likely had some sort of, you know, infarction of the hypocretin neurons, maybe eight months pre previously or a year previously. And so, it's kind of like you know, there's no smoking gun at that point. So, 
Um, yeah, go ahead. I've got a, a study uh, here that looks at autoimmunity to mm-hmm. the brain or to different parts of the brain caused by environmental mold toxins. And very specifically, they know which part of the pituitary gland gets targeted in, in response to exposure to water damaged buildings. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that's in the, the documentary on toxic mold I have because mold is a big trigger of autoimmunity. But, but so is like excessive stress and adrenal dysfunction that tends to precede autoimmunity. So if you had a stressful period, you were exposed to some trigger, mm-hmm. probably environmentally. And then, then all of a sudden, like a year later, you're like, my brain is jacked and I have no idea why. And you're not going to find that stuff anymore unless you happen to be living in the same house that got you sick in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. So that's likely what is happening with narcolepsy. There is some environmental trigger. There's probably some genetic genetic susceptibility. We see that. There's probably, maybe it's also under the conditions of stress. So that sort of confluence of factors, just like you described, could absolutely be what's causing a variety of different sorts of autoimmune attacks. And with narcolepsy, it's about one in, you know, one in 2,000 people have it. And, um, you know, as I was describing before, these hypocretin neurons sit at the center of your wake network. And so if you imagine those, the symphony conductor being removed from the symphony, then there's just not as much of a signal to other areas of the wake network that keep the cortex alert during the day that keep you functioning um, to to kind of say, hey, be on now, it's daytime, Uh, be alert, function. And what happens is narcoleptics have a very interesting pattern of sleep. They don't sleep more than normal people. They actually sleep eight hours about, um, just like the normal population, but they cannot sustain wakefulness for more than three to four hours at a time. And then they have to sleep again. And then they can, but they can't sleep for very long. They can only sleep for, let's say an hour or two. And then they've got a, then they can be up again. And so they're almost like a cat where they have, they can only be up for a little bit of time. Then they, they rest, be up for a little bit of time. So over the course of a 24 hour period, it's almost like they're doing polyphasic sleep. You know, they, they're up for a little bit, then they sleep. They're up for a little bit, then they sleep. And that's really difficult in modern life, which expects you to be at your job for eight hours um, and to be able to, you know, sust- you know, be able to sleep for or you know, be at your job for eight hours, be up for 16 or be or sleep for eight hours so that you can have an, you know, a full day of functioning. And so anyway, it's a very difficult condition. Um, they take uh, very high amounts of stimulants and um, it, it still doesn't completely kind of reduce the sleepiness that they feel they're still clinically meaning you know, clinically sleepy so they'll you know they'll take methamphetamine and it's still not enough to get them to feel as alert as you and I do I got an email a while back actually I've received a few from narcoleptics uh, and, and this guy that was like Dave I went from like 30 or so attacks down to one a day yeah. when I switched to bulletproof coffee mm-hmm. and uh, my my question for you is, is, okay, is it likely mitochondria mediated? Like, like, do some people just suck at using glucose in their brains? So maybe just, oh my goodness, I had ketones because I used some brain octane oil. So now, oh, now I have enough energy. So is it that like the brain cells are building up a charge? They just can't hold the charge for very long. Uh, there's some studies about that, like, cause it actually doesn't make sense. Like amphetamine is a very strong stimulant and coffee is not a very strong stimulant, yeah. but at least in that one weird case, uh, where you know, he, he felt that he should email me about it. I I've always wondered, is there some mechanism you can think of around blood sugar versus fat and neurons versus glial cells in any, any light you can shed on that? Cause I was so fascinated by, by that. Yeah. So I have not thought about this question before. So this is going to just be like on okay. the fly. But so the drug that I worked with was sodium oxabate. Now, mm-hmm. the other name for that drug is gamma hydroxybutyrate, GHB, which is has, right. It's as a, it's a drug of abuse, um, but it is a short chain fatty acid. And if that at all sounds familiar to people, as if they don't know it for kind of the, the fact that it's used as a, as a medication, um, you know, it, it was called like the date rape drug, um, uh, which that's a whole other story that's very complex, but, uh, and I'll just mention something about it because people are like, well, wait, tell me about that. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah. So rohypnol is a long acting benzodiazepine that caused retrograde amnesia. So it caused people to forget what happened to them 16 hours prior to taking it. And that was used as a, to facilitate date rape. Um, that was cracked down on and GHB 
B, which is a very, very different sort of a drug, yeah. started to be used in a similar capacity, but it has much different effects. It doesn't cause retrograde amnesia, um, but it will cause basically, you know, sedation and hypnosis, um, you know, given in a certain amount. But any drug that is that has those sorts of central nervous system depressant properties like alcohol, um, you know, there's actually 60 different drugs that are classified as uh, date rape substances then they can all be used in that manner. So there's really nothing kind of unique or specific about GHB, but it did get that notoriety. And so that was kind of the social political environment around the same time that the company was looking to develop it for narcolepsy. And it has very interesting properties for narcolepsy. It does things that other drugs don't seem to do. So if you think about narcolepsy, a good way to think of it is that there's it's two different uh, there's two different main symptoms. One is suppressed wakefulness. That's what most people think about. Narcoleptics are extremely sleepy and they can sleep at any time. They also have something called cataplexy, which is basically loss of muscle tone um, with an emotional trigger. So let's say I'm about to tell you a joke. All of a sudden, I'm, my, my jaw might sag. My shoulders might sag. I will feel heavy and I'm, I might even collapse all the way to the ground. And people have mistaken that as, oh, they're so sleepy, they fell, they fell to the sleep. That person is, is wide awake, but they basically are in a temporary, they're temporarily paralyzed. Wow. Um, yeah, and that is very, very dangerous. Because imagine if somebody had any sort of emotional reaction at the top of a stair, at the top of, you know, stairs, and they had a full collapse. Well, people have died that way. And so the battles to get GHB approved were basically these two camps. One is like, this is a poison that should not be released under the street. And the other people are like, this is the only thing, you know, my friend died because they had a cataplectic attack at the top of the stairs. And this is the only drug that's ever helped. And so, you know, I haven't worked with this drug in 10 years, but I wrote a lot about it. And the mechanisms of action were, it was not clear. There was a lot of different things that it seemed to have been doing. But anyway, that's kind of a long-winded story. So GHB, gamma hydroxybutyrate, is awfully similar to beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is a ketone that has vast, <laughs> interesting effects on the brain. Um, Appetite-suppressing effects, uh, you know, it actually can affect the health of certain uh, neurons within the hypothalamus. And so now GHB would have a much bigger impact than amphetamines over the long term. Well, not a much bigger, but a, a, about the same to bigger impact on wakefulness than amphetamine. And so what's going on there? This is a sleep drug that's helping them perhaps sleep a little bit better, you know, more deeply. But is it also somehow affecting the health of the cells, the remaining hypocretin cells? Because not everybody has like complete removal of those cells. They might have 10% surviving hypocretin uh, neurons. And if you can get them healthy or you can actually make ones that they thought were dead, healthier again, you might be able to restore some function. Um, or maybe there's other mechanisms altogether. But either way, I, it's a really interesting parallel that you drew. And maybe beta-hydroxybutyrate is acting similarly to gamma-hydroxybutyrate. And that wouldn't be so far-fetched, you know, in my mind. And, and for, for people uh, listening, uh, the reason that I use Brain Octane, which is about 6% of what's in coconut oil, is it is the one oil you can get that most quickly converts to BHB in the body and then BHB can convert to coenzyme A, which then converts to ATP. And so that's why a tablespoon of coconut oil is not the same. It's actually eight, one tablespoon of brain octane is 18 tablespoons of coconut oil for this one short chain C8 fatty acid. And yeah, we're getting a little bit geeky there, but like the difference is like you drink one cup of bulletproof coffee made with the right recipe versus throwing coconut in there. Coconut is good for you. Get some lauric acid. It, it's almost like free. <laughs> and lauric acid is so abundant in coconut oil that you don't need to separate it out. And it's not a medium chain triglyceride anyway. That's a marketing scam. Anyway, that's probably <laughs> a side topic. It's a long chain fat that's labeled a medium chain fat. So I have a mech, I have a potential mechanism for why bulletproof coffee stimulates unusual amount of alertness. Oh, please do tell. I've been trying to figure this out because it doesn't make sense. It kind of <laughs> does, but like I have a bunch of them, but I want to know. Like, okay, so, um, all right, we we the ketones can can pass the blood brain barrier and they can serve as a fuel. Uh, for the brain. So we, yeah. we know that, but that, but why would that make you hyper, hyper alert, which a yeah. lot of people experience? I have myself. Well, as we talked about earlier, if hypocretin neurons are inhibited by glucose, right? Oh. And you, yeah. And you're fasting, then you're going to have this dual response from a hyper alert hypocretin system because it's not getting any inhibition from, you know, glucose or perhaps 
subdued and, you know, uh, less, if you have a big glucose meal for breakfast, then it doesn't mean that you're going to be sleepy. Although some people might experience that it might just mean that you feel a little bit more calm. Um, but basically when the absence of glucose, you can, it could, it could explain why when we're hungry, we have this increased arousal. And so in the morning you have got ample fuel through the ketones and you've got this, basically hyper arousal from hypocretin neurons and that's keeping you in a very lucid alert state you're amplifying the effects of uh kind of the primary alertness driver in the central nervous system i hope that made sense (laughs) it it did make sense so you're sort of thinking that when people do it the way i recommend without protein that raises uh, insulin and can raise glucose a little bit and without carbohydrates so in other words just fat and coffee including the brain octane oil and grass-fed butter uh, when you do that in the morning, it's the suppression of the glucose just because there isn't any in your diet, plus yeah. the increase in ketones. So it's it's that the ratio of the two shifted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, so, I didn't I didn't know about that, and I didn't put that in the bulletproof diet book. But uh, <laughs> there's some other mechanisms around gut bacteria and stuff. But okay, thank you for that. That's that's valuable. Absolutely. I mean, this this is something that's not talked about very frequently. This could also be why people experience um, and the, the, the same mechanism could be to could explain the kind of the dip in consciousness or alertness in the afternoon after a high carbohydrate lunch. Right? Because you it's, have glucose, which suppresses the hypocretin. That's function. right. Yeah. And hypocretin function naturally dips in the afternoon. That's why we take siestas between two and four. And so that natural dip could be basically exaggerated um, in the presence of glucose. So if you want to take a nap, great, have a higher, carbo- higher carbohydrate meal and go to sleep when your body tells you to, and you could get a real deep, good nap. Um, and then wake up and, you know, and you can use naps functionally. If you need to do a lot of writing or, you know, or anything like that in the, in the evening, taking a nap can supercharge that. So uh, that, that was yeah. actually my next question for you. It was oh, like, cool. I, like, let's, let's like, what can people use right now? So your take on naps, what's the best time for a nap if you're going to do it and why should you do it or not do it? Yeah. So naps are neither good or bad, but they can be used in a, in a smart manner. So it, the time to do it, we have these ultradian rhythms throughout the day. So a circadian rhythm is a, a kind of a repeatable 24-hour process. Ultradian rhythms are small micro-rhythms that take place within a 24-hour rhythm. And one of those rhythms is this circadian dip in the afternoon of our alertness drive. And that is going that that is when all around the world humans will rest, somewhere between 2 and 4 in the afternoon. And that is, that is explained by this redu- reduced activity of hypocretin neurons. And so act on that. Um, now there's different, there's kind of thought about how long should you nap? Um, and ha, you know, how, if, if you, when you sleep for a certain length of time, you can get into, uh, certain different stages of sleep. And if you wake up out of a slower, you know, slow wave sleep, more deep sleep, you can feel groggy. Um, and you can feel groggy for the rest of the day. So a power nap is somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes. And it, it is, kind of disproportionately recharging. It, we don't exactly know why it, it restores you as much as it does. Um, and it might have to do with kind of sodium potassium signaling at the cells. I mean, it's it's not fully explained just by kind of a reduction in sleep, but we know that when you do fall asleep, you have a fairly rapid reduction in sleep pressure. So what is the kind of the correlate or the thing in the brain that is representative of sleep pressure? It's the it's a buildup of adenosine. And that makes a lot of sense because what are what is adenosine a byproduct of? Energy utilization. Yep. Right? If you think about adenosine triphosphate, as you're using it, as you're using energy, there is this accumulation of adenosine. Um it's in the basal forebrain, and adenosine can do basically two different things. It can suppress the activity of neurons that keep us awake, and it can also then um, activate neurons that facilitate sleepiness. So it kind of, in two ways, it's causing promoting sleepiness. And what does caffeine do? It's an inten- it's an adenosine antagonist. It's blocking the effects of adenosine, which is one of the re- which is the primary reason why um, ca- caffeine will make us more alert. It's blocking sleepiness that exists, that's there. Um, So that's uh, what happens then when you sleep. Well, sleep actually wears down. You process all that adenosine that is built up. And so if you nap, you do the same, right? You process some of that adenosine. And because you have less when you wake up, then you can actually feel rather alert for the remainder of the day. And it's pretty complex, probably too much to 
explain without graphs about these kind of different systems that are involved in keeping you awake, but kind of basically how alert or how sleepy you feel across a 24-hour period is this dance between two different systems, sleep pressure, which is adenosine, and then wake drive. And wake drive is basically the activity of all of these different neuron groups in the brain that keep the cortex alert. And they increase in activity over the course of the day as sleep pressure builds. So at night, they're working really, really hard. And right before sleep, they drop off and all you have is this unopposed sleep pressure and that makes you feel really sleepy quickly and then it helps you stay asleep over the course of the night. So um, taking a nap can be really, really good, but I also mostly try to avoid naps um, because I'd rather just go to bed earlier. And what happens when you get a nap, it can actually make you not feel sleepy when ordinarily you'd be going to bed. So I just oftentimes try to get most of my sleep between, you know, when I go to bed at night, and when I wake up in the morning, because I can't always predict when I can have the opportunity to nap. So um, you can also condition to a nap where you become very, you know, you're like, all right, I'm taking a nap every day at three. And if you don't get that opportunity, then you could feel really, really sleepy. And if you happen to be driving at that time, then that could be problematic. So mostly I try to avoid naps. I do take them to catch up on sleep. So if I haven't been getting enough, then I will try to get one. So I, I, I generally, I'm not, um, I, I like naps. I, I do take them. Um, I, I kind of ask myself the question, all right, is it really necessary or can I actually just go to bed a little bit earlier? And, and that's what I usually aim to try to do. Uh, that's uh, very much what, what I do as well. I, I don't yeah. want to nap every day. There are people yeah. who say uh, increases performance or whatnot, but it also, well, that's time that you're not doing stuff and there's lay down, wake up and uh, you know, get yourself going again. But if yeah. I'm really short on sleep or if I'm dealing with uh, you know, crossing lots of time zones, sometimes there's a good case for it, but to, uh, to do it every day, it doesn't fit well with my lifestyle or just yeah. you know, the amount of stuff I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about mattresses. Okay. Soft, hard, cold, warm. Like what's, what's the ideal mattress for you? You know, it's pretty funny. I don't know anything about mattresses. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I really don't. And, you, you call know, yourself I, a sleep expert? What's I that? know. <laughs> you know, I, I feel like um, people can condition to a lot of different surfaces. Um, generally, you want to be at, at night. You, you want your environment to be dark cool, quiet, and comfortable. And so different people love a hard mattress and they feel they get really rock solid sleep on it. Some people like a softer mattress. Some people have certain anatomical situations they're trying to address. Like, you know, they might have some sort of, uh, you know, shoulder pain or they, they like sleeping on their side or their, or their front. So there's other reasons where the right type, a certain type of mattress might be better for you. But generally I think you can get good sleep on a variety of surfaces and you can condition to that surface. So let's say you're used to a, a softer mattress and then you go to a hard mattress, your sleep might not be as good for a period of time, but it might be fine after let's say six weeks or, it, or a month. It might also be better. I, I, I did this, I haven't even written this up yet, but Mm. Um, about almost a year ago, uh, a yoga teacher friend said, well, you know, I've been sleeping on the floor mm. on a blanket because that's what they're, they do somewhere that she learned at some class. And I said, well, that sounds really uncomfortable. And she said, no, like after a week or two, all body pain sort of just went away and, and that it was really interesting. Mm. And we theorize that maybe the, the proprioceptors in your joints get no signal from a soft mattress. So these are the things yeah, that yeah. tell your joints where they are. So I tried it and I've been yeah. sleeping on like a one inch th piece uh, of foam, like hard neoprene foam, closed cell, like yeah. almost like sleeping on the floor. And the first week everything hurt. And after that, I wake up with way less, in fact, almost mm. no joint pain. And even uh, I've been working on some sciatica from over exercising my posterior chain um, and even that got like essentially gone. I, I was blown away by how good I feel. And when I go to a hotel, I'm yeah. like, this mattress is like sleeping on jello. Like it's gross, uh, which is kind of <laughs> weird. But yeah, any, any thoughts about uh, like signaling from the environment to the body about just pressure while sleeping? Yeah. I mean, that does, you know, my, my bias in the absence of either available, no available <laughs> knowledge or understanding or my own knowledge or understanding tends to gravitate towards what did our ancestors, what was the conditions like for our ancestors? Did they have, uh, you know, a 12 inch thick, you know, uh, Tempur-Pedic mattress or, you know, something that was uber hey, soft. That yeah, Kevin like, like have a sleep number. It was chiseled into the wall. I <laughs> oh, oh <is> that right? <laughs> 
Yeah. And, you know, so while not paleo, I kind of I do have an ancestral bias. I think that's a good it's always a, it's, it's good to think that way. Like, all right. So what were the conditions like in, uh, over the millennia that we evolved? And um, it's likely that, you know, we, we probably had less of a perfectly smooth surface and it was probably harder. And I would not be surprised if there was um, at minimum, you know, no at least good as good sleep, maybe better. And like you said, I mean, if you, it, that, that hard mattress could feel, you know, the hard floor could feel like really uncomfortable for a while, but then it also might, you know, have some benefits in kind of sensitizing your kind of, uh, you know, the nerve receptors so that you have experienced less pain during the day. It's, um, I'm totally open to that idea. I just don't know that much on it. Don't know. Okay. Yeah. And, and there may not be any research yeah. <laughs> about this, to be honest. It was just an observation that was profound enough that yeah. I I really noticed the difference now, but it also could be I'm just conditioned to a hard surface, uh, but maybe yeah. that makes me tougher. Maybe it's like intermittent fasting or something. You yeah. teach your body to deal with more, so it does. But Absolutely. Uh, all I know is when I come home and I lay down on that that thing, which is like the floor, I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Like now I, now I sleep like I, I want to sleep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I started to, I um, I had a very thick pillow for a long time, and my neck always hurt. And now I've been, I basically sleep on a very minimal pillow now, and um, I feel like I have better body alignment. And you know, we're in this position all day long, sitting in chairs. So I use a lot of foam rolling to lay back across it several times a day. But also laying flat is a lot different than lay, laying up with your shoulders still kind of hunched in that position. So. A flat pillow is something that I appreciate. Uh, that's one modification that I've definitely made to my my sleep Wait. environment. Um, on Bulletproof Radio, I had another guest uh, come on with a, a sleep sensor to teach you to not sleep on your back to solve apnea. Are you a side sleeper or a back sleeper? Uh, so I, it's funny. Um, I start the first half half of the night. I sleep on my back, and then I would probably say seventy five percent of my time asleep on the second half of the night is on my stomach. Oh, so you're a back and stomach sleep, but stomach sleep yeah. is relatively unusual. Yeah. And is that conscious or is that just what your body does? Just what my body does. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, I've tested the back sleeping, which I did for a long time because I thought it was healthier um, yeah. versus side sleeping. And I mm -hmm. don't believe I have apnea and my ZO scores and all the other sleep hacking stuff don't don't show that I do. I have a Bedit sensor and I use stuff yeah. on my iPhone and like I kind of overtrack my sleep because it's painless to do. Yeah. And... Um, I've found that I, I probably sleep best on my side, but the problem is that I'm not a small guy and the distance from my shoulder to my head is bigger than most people. So if I put yeah. a normal pillow here, my head is at this odd angle and then yeah. I have to have my shoulder up. So just getting the right height pillow totally changed my ability to side sleep. And yeah. I think most people just never pay attention. Like I don't just have a pillow. I don't even know what's inside it. it yeah. But just paying little bits of attention there, it works. And I got another pillow. If I'm going to sleep on my back, that fat one is going to do, you know, the tuck your chin thing. Right, right. So just looking at anatomy and sleep is something that, that no one's ever trained to do with that unless your parents yeah. are like obsessive <laughs> and they like teach right. you when you're a kid. It, this is invisible, but it yeah. seems to matter. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, like you, it's a good point because I'm a back and, and stomach sleeper. A, a thin pillow is is good for me. But if you're a side sleeper, like you said, you know, you could be in this very weird position if you don't have adequate support underneath your head. So um, my wife, she has, she sleeps with a kind of a thicker pillow because she's a slight side sleeper herself. Yeah. Well, how, how do you sleep or how do you hack jet lag then? So, so now you're in hotels or, or whatever, you don't get to have your favorite pillow, but, but you deal with people like you know, military where they might fly to the other side of the planet, you know, blow yeah. stuff up and fly back. What's the, the kind of short jet lag hack that people might appreciate? Yeah. So most people take melatonin incorrectly. Um, melatonin is, is more of a timing hormone. So it, it's, it's tells the body what time of day it is than it is a sleep induction hormone. It has some soporific effects or sleep inducing effects, but they're, they're pretty weak. Um, and so melatonin is produced uh, in response to something called dim light melatonin onset. So when the light goes down and the tone and the intensity of light change, light will enter into the eye and there are certain receptors in the back of the eye that are, that are sensitive to, the, to, to light. Now these are not rods and cones. Rods and cones are also sensitive to light and they are communicating with the primary visual cortex to turn that light into shapes and images that we can see. Um, in the mid nineties, a researcher Ignacio Provencio discovered a, a very similar class of these neurons that can transduce 
photons into nerve signals. But instead of going to the visual cortex, it went instead to the master clock. And these are called uh, intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. It's kind of a long word, but it's just kind of descriptive of what they do and where they are. And anyway, they, um, they, they're basically responsible for helping our body understand what time of day it is. And so at, during the day, we like to get a lot of light. And if you think of your eyes almost like a photon counter, then they getting like the intensity of light outside is much, much more intense than indoor light. So indoor light, you know, will range somewhere between a thousand and maybe 10,000 lux. Lux is a measurement of, of light intensity, but you go outside on a blue sky at noon and it's going to be over a hundred thousand lux. So it's an order orders of magnitude different. And, um, anyway, so in the evening, as the light changes, then our eyes are attuned to that. So the intensity decreases and the tone of the light becomes a little more amber, uh, you know, dusk colors. And that actually tells the brain to start producing melatonin and melatonin will then reinforce to the master clock. It actually kind of is produced in response to the low light, but then it also tells the brain, Hey, yeah, it's actually low light. And it says, okay, yeah, it's dark. It's dark out kind of start dark, uh, you know, dark activities, um, throughout the body. So what's the jet lag hack? Well, um, if you are going to a different time zone, then think about when it is getting dark there and take a half a milligram of melatonin starting three days prior to when you leave three to three to five days prior to when you leave, um, in your current time zone. And what you're basically doing is you're not going to induce any sort of sleepiness. It's not, that is not a dose that's strong enough to create, cause you to be sleepy, but it is a dose that's strong enough to tell you to start to basically adjust you to the new time zone before you leave. So what that means is that you're going to have less adjusting to do once you arrive. So you can shift your, your internal time zone starting three days before. And if you pair that with lights and light exposure, wearing the amber glasses and you're not looking at bright lights at a time in the times that you're going to be, you can probably amplify that effect. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So that's going to, that's going to further facilitate, you know, endogenous melatonin release. So you have a kind of a exogenous in the form of a pill. You have the endogenous production by wearing amber glasses. You can also then use, you know, light in the morning. So let's say you're, you know, you've got, you want to, you're going to be shifting so that you're waking up earlier and going to bed earlier. Then is, you know, you let your body start to wake up earlier. And as soon as you do get bright light, as soon as you can, that is also going to facilitate that shift um, and make it faster as well. So there, so there you go on Bulletproof Radio, like new new hacks for jet lag. Uh, this is something I've written about a lot, but I, I love getting it directly from someone who's spent you know, eight years looking at GHB. <laughs> this is so cool, Dan. We're, right on. we're coming up on the end of the show. Uh, last uh, last year at PaleoFX, you gave a, a keynote uh, about why we get fat. Are you going to be speaking or are you going to be attending PaleoFX this year? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I didn't submit a presentation just because I'm uh, very busy with other things. I yeah. really, I love presenting. Um, it takes a lot of time. It does. It does. Uh, but I am going to be presenting. I think we're we are on a panel together. Oh, are you on the same panels, man? I know I'm, I'm presenting there as well, uh, but I haven't yeah. checked out who's going to be there. The reason I'm asking uh, yeah. is that, A, I want to give a shout out to PaleoFX in Austin. It's a totally cool thing to do. I think this will be the third year uh, Bulletproof's been there. Um, but I, I would love to have more conversation with you. And I'm wondering if there's a possibility when we're there, if I can grab you, if, if I bring a couple of cameras, we can set up and do another, uh, another set of Q&A. Because I only got through half the questions I want to answer because you can answer all these questions, man. You, you, you've got too much knowledge. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love right. to. Uh, I mean, uh, my wife doesn't want to hear me talk about this stuff. So <laughs> <laughs> or she's heard, she's heard it enough. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna we're gonna work on doing a, a second live episode with you where we can talk about some of the other sleep hacks because uh, this is just great fun and it's such a way to get for people to get value uh, out of what this, you're gonna do it anyway. You might as well sleep better. Yeah. But since this is our first a uh, first episode now, there is the final question that I always ask on Bulletproof Radio. Given all the stuff you know, not just about sleep but about life your top three recommendations for people who want to kick more ass at life. So you want to perform better at everything you do, do these three things. So I would say focus on the mundane, but meaningful. 
there's a lot of things in our world today around health which are, have merit. And this, I, I, I call it, um, you know, we're, we're looking for some exotic solution that can kind of supercharge us. And, and they exist. But what we, shouldn't, what we shouldn't do is overlook fundamentals that um, are important to cognition and health. So getting good sleep can sometimes not be that sexy. Uh, it's, it's certainly not something you're going to post on, you know, your Facebook wall, but it has a massive impact on both how well you perform and how well you live and how healthy you are. So, um, I would say the, you know, mundane is something that's kind of like, ah, it's easy to overlook, but it means, it means a lot. And so we, next time when we speak, I'll tell you about how I translate knowledge into what I think are kind of the best things to focus on in order for you to get good sleep. Um, and they can be as simple as have a very clear idea in your mind about what time you want to go to bed. Uh, and I'll tell you how to architect that. So what is, how do you base that idea? And it has to do with how much time you want to be in bed and also kind of like circadian timing. And, um, but once you do that, having that clear idea and track it so that you can then know, all right, am I actually meeting my goals on a regular basis? And because in life today, whether it's work or other sorts of distractions like Game of Thrones or, you know, House of Cards, there are things that are out there that are competing for our attention. And if left unchecked, then sleep gets sacrificed. And that is the condition of the modern world. And so you need to have clarity around, okay, what is my sleep practice? How do I get good sleep? And then I think objective feedback has absolutely been shown to be beneficial to say, hey, these are the behavior, these are your goals, and here's how you do, you're doing towards them on an ongoing basis. And that type of feedback can help us in this world where it's so easy to miss sleep. It's easier to miss sleep these days than to get perfect sleep. So that's, that's one. Um, okay. So let's see. So three of them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wow. Um, all right. So focus on the mundane, but meaningful. It's kind of like focus on the fundamentals. Um, three is know how you, uh, know how you learn. Uh, it took me a while. I became an, an kind of a better and better student over the course of my, you know, academic career. Um, I was an okay student in high school, a better student in college and a good student student in graduate school. Uh, and I think every, that had everything to do with understanding how I learn. And so the way that I figured that out is that I kind of was very intentional about exploring what that meant um, for me. And I know that in order for me to learn things, I need to interact with information. I can't passively consume it. Um, and so because there's so much, so many things in the world that interest me, I have a breadth and depth approach. My breadth approach is say, okay, I'm going to then try to just get exposure to a lot of information, but I'm not going to try to learn all of it. I'm going to use that breadth to pluck out the things that I actually want to take a deeper dive on. And then I will go, I'll spend kind of a disproportionate amount of time on one academic paper. I'll spend three days just learning it. But when I do that, my own learning is so much better than if I just kind of casually consume things. Like I can recall and refer to studies that I read years ago only for the papers that I spent more time really looking into. And, you know, whether it's a paper or anything else, learn it back and forwards and you'll have that knowledge for life and talk about it and teach others. So that's, that's number two, know yourself and know how you learn. Um, and then, uh, and then I think probably the third one is like kind of the tail end of the fourth one is, is for the things that you like and learn, teach others, um, teaching others, is a great way to share, uh, you know, stuff that's valuable. Um, a lot of people in the world, of course, care about the same things that you do. Being able to teach them is a great way for you to learn. And it's also a great way to, you know, to help your friends and people you love to kind of benefit from these cool things that you're picking up on. You, so, yeah. You might be the first person to say teach others as one of their top three. And it's, it's very wise. I, I wouldn't be where I am in my career if I hadn't spent years teaching people because uh, it is how I learn too. It's very, very perceptive that, that you said that. I, I, that's an unusual one. Yeah, cool. Cool. Yeah. Focus on, you know, focus on fundamentals, know how you learn and teach others. Beautiful. Dan, thanks a lot for being on Bulletproof Radio. If people want to hear more about your work and what you do, where should they go? Uh, yeah, go to, uh, go to danceplan.com. Um, I bet your audience would really like a blog I just wrote. Um, it's a little bit of a controversial title, Why Dietary Fat is Fattening and When It's Not. <laughs> um, Timing matters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So check, yeah, check that out. That got a lot, really good traffic. I think people will enjoy okay. it's, it's a, you know, that's a difficult 
it's a difficult topic to unpack and I tried to do, do it well. Um, and then also, you know, my site, which you didn't talk about is basically, you know, the, the loop model that I developed, I'm trying to operationalize that into a tool that people can use to benefit their own life. All right. Let's make sure in the next interview that we do at Paleo FX that you and I talk about that. So remind me then. Cool. We'll cool. do. All right, Dan. Thanks for coming on Bulletproof Radio. And I'm yeah. really looking forward to the next time we, we record because I just yeah. didn't get enough. Awesome. I got, I got, uh, I know I could talk about this stuff all day and I love talking with, <laughs> with, with people that are really passionate like I am. So thanks. Appreciate being on. You, you got it. If you enjoyed today's episode of Bulletproof Radio, there's an easy way to say thanks. Actually, there's a whole bunch of them, but the easiest one is to go over to your favorite online bookstore or offline and buy a copy of the Bulletproof Diet book. Uh, this is the easiest way to say thanks for episodes like this that are chock full of information where you can learn stuff you're not going to find anywhere else. And when you buy that book, it's going to help me write my next book. So now is a really important time for sales to go up. So buy it as a gift for one of your friends. If you already have a copy, buy another one and carry it with you all the time. And you'll see me in an airport and I'll sign it for you. However you do it, I'd appreciate it. And if you don't want to buy the book or buy another copy of the book, then just head out there onto iTunes and click this is a really good show or whatever that like button is on iTunes. Thanks so much. Have an awesome day. And I will see you on the next episode. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.